All right, folks, we're, today we're going to start off with a quote from my man Dave Grohl. There's no context for this, but it's part The Shining, part Amityville, part Evil Dead. Fuck it. We might as well make a horror movie. And that turned into Studio 666. And I guess, you know, if we're going to really break it down, that is a sort of an underrated horror gem. Um of 2022 brennan feel free to chime in about that um <laughs> i i just wanted to read that because me and brendan both have an affinity for studio 666 and i thought it would kick off our little uh horror escapade today but yeah brendan's my guest today my roommate slash writing partner slash good friend slash horror nerd thank you man thanks for coming on i'm happy to be on it's a long-awaited you know opportunity for me <laughs> yeah. you've been dreaming about it um do you want to give your quick thought? Just because I set up Studio 666, I feel like we've been dying to talk about it publicly because no one talks about Studio 666 ever. Oh, definitely, man. I, I think it's one of those movies this year that you're, you're kind of shocked at a theatrical release. And when you watch it, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's so zany and so wacky. Um, you're just kind of shocked it was made in the first place. And I think yeah, that goes to say with our with our list ahead of us, these are just movies that don't get the love they don't get you know they don't get the acclaim enough and that's why we want to throw them out there to uh, the audience yeah oh yeah definitely and um not even to hark back on studio 666 but like that was a horror movie there's a lot of underrated horror movies this year um which even can make for another list but like um my list was kind of inspired by just like kind of movies that people don't usually recommend um i don't think we're going super deep deep cut right like we're not like ultra like underground sort of you know whatever subgenre of horror is like the most obscure i think we're just kind of going like for normal movie fans like us like what are some five horror gems that no one talks about so um but before we do that i thought we would do just because like the cinnabums usually do a sort of like what do, what have we been watching recently just kind of like a fun little like just, you know, like if you're scrolling through Letterbox and you go down your diary, and obviously it's been October, so I think we've been going pretty hard on the horror movies. So, like, what what's something you watched in the past, like, two two weeks, I'd say, that, that stands out? Yeah, I think um, I have a couple movies here, but I'll name specifically two of them. Um, one I watched recently was Bones by Ernest Dickerson. Ooh, and, uh, Jimmy Bones. Yeah, Jimmy Bones, Snoop Dogg himself. <laughs> I was really blown away um, by the movie. I, I I know Ernest Dickerson is always a great director. Obviously, oh, he's yeah. shown me, you know, Tales from Tales from the Crypt, yeah, yeah. Demon Knight, which yeah. is like the movie adaptation of the show, exactly. Which is a great movie, by the way. That's another it kind is. of underrated horror movie. It is, and um, Bones is exactly like that. You know, people people were joking, oh, Snoop Dogg can't act, but. He's actually really great in the role, and it's one of the few times in a horror movie when you actually care about the ghost. And mm. sometimes those kind of horror stories are the ones that I attach myself to the most. Sure. Yeah. Ernest Dickerson, too, like, he was a DP for Spike Lee for a long time, um, shot some of his most iconic movies. And I imagine that Bones, I haven't seen it, but I'm sure, like, visually it's pretty rich. Because, like, I remember even Demon Knight, like, the camera movement and everything is really unique for a horror movie you know so yeah i loved ernest dickerson and it's definitely been on my list for a while i'll have to borrow your uh your shout factory there man oh yeah um, definitely what's one for you oh there's so many i you know 
everyone talks about child's play um i I, i've recently watched the first child's play and i loved it i'll just leave it at that i kind of want to talk about something more interesting Mm -hmm. which is something we watched together which was eaten alive by toby hooper um which we kind of just watched together on a whim like we we saw it on shutter and it looked good um and to me that that movie was in like kind of the the peak of toby hooper's career like coming off of texas chainsaw it was like between that i believe uh funhouse and life force came like after that i think but he was like he was getting studio funding probably because like before that he was like just doing underground horror movies um leading up to texas chainsaw and i feel like eating alive was kind of like his his big breakout movie um in terms of like showing all of his sensibilities because it's just absolutely insane like stylistically it's just balls to the wall the lighting's so crazy the energy is like really unnerving and really kind of grates on you but i think that's what toby hooper does best so for me it was a five-star movie what do you what do you think about it because like i think we kind of had a fun time watching it together it was a blast honestly <laughs> it was it was a twisted 70s blast it is um, it just has such a gnarly kind of grindhouse feel to it mm-hmm. i think i said it perfectly after the movie i'm like i, I need to take a shower after yeah. this you know <laughs> it just makes you feel absolutely filthy yeah um, but in the kind of similar to watching the original texas chainsaw massacre you're just like it feels like a movie you'd find like at a gas station or something like in a cassette tape or something it feels like kind of like a snuff movie in a way um but yeah i just wanted to mention that because like that's Going into our theme of our full video, I think that's like one of Hooper's lesser known, more like obscure movies. And I thought it was like an amazing horror movie, like really idiosyncratic and like really unique. So, so yeah, is there any others you've watched in the past like week that you want to shout out? doesn't have to be a horror movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, Other than that, I think, uh, I think another one that really blew me away was Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, you, yeah. You showed me that one about two weekends ago. Nice. And uh, it really blew me away. I, I, have a, I have a love for movies that really know how to insert music and oh, yeah. use it to tell a story. And the way that movie does it, it's, it's so beautiful. Um, and it's <laughs> such an interesting retelling of Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, definitely. You know, I just love when a filmmaker like uh, Brian De Palma in this situation can really reinvent a classic that we all know and love and mm-hmm. just make it make it their own and it's totally ripped sure. away from the original <laughs> and like have a really great satirical look at the music industry of the time and really tragic story like few De Palma movies like I'm that really invested in the character emotionally um in terms of like his horror stuff yeah. um definitely Carrie and other exceptions but like Phantom of the Paradise is like a really empathetic movie but also like at the same time, I think we talked about it after the movie, like really hysterical and really high energy. So obviously that's that's like a personal favorite of mine. I've, I've talked about De Palma on the pod a lot. So so yeah, man, I'm glad you loved it though. Um, um, the last one I'll talk about, not a horror movie, but I actually just watched it today. And I don't know if, I don't know if you saw me log in on Letterboxd, but um, I watched Force Majeure by uh, Ruben Osland. Um, which is a I, I'm kind of ashamed I haven't seen any of his movies because he has a new movie Triangle of Sadness coming out so I'm like you know what now it's time to actually get into his movies because they're always like so well acclaimed at like the Cannes Film Festival and everyone talks about him as like a really promising filmmaker I guess he's, he's like really well established now for sure but 
Triangle of Sadness, like he won the top prize at Cannes. So I've been like really interested in getting into this guy's work. And Force Majeure is a really fascinating movie, man. Like I, I kind of thought going in it would be more of a satirical sort of lighthearted uh, movie with dark elements. Because like for those who don't know, it's about a family that goes away to a ski resort and an avalanche occurs and it kind of sets off this really troubling family dynamic and sort of... Uh, argument that goes on for the rest of the vacation um and it was that it was really dark and really twisted but it was kind of felt like an observational uh movie where you're kind of just watching this family slowly deteriorate sort of their um their uh veneer like their their persona like on the surface like because they're kind of like a wealthy family and it really digs deep into their like psychology and like their relationships so it was like a really interesting film um yeah like he has a really distinct style like the way his movies look he really he'll hold the camera like in one shot like sort of like a wide shot and like all of his subjects and his actors are in the shot and it'll be like a 10 minute scene um so stylistically it's really interesting um and yeah like i, I know a lot of people have talked about that movie it was a big uh deal like five years ago i'm just late to the party but yeah, I really loved it, man. Like, it's a really good movie. And like, I had like a great script, um, really unique tone, like a really, really solid movie. Um, next, I want to watch this Square, <clears throat> which was his film, is his, his follow-up to that movie, which seems more divisive. Like, a lot of people say it's ex extremely slow and pretentious. So I'm, I'm definitely excited to check one, that one out. And of course, Triangle of Sadness comes out. So, so yeah, man, Ruben Osland, uh uh, definitely want to see more of his movies. It was a great like entry point for force majeure. Yeah, he's um, a director to look out for. <laughs> yeah, you check out Ruben Oslin, guys, if you haven't. Um, yeah, and Triangle of Sadness opens up. I, I mean, I don't know about nationwide, but for for us, it comes out really soon. So I'm definitely excited to to check that one out. So all right, guys, uh, let's let's just get to the list. Our top five horror movie gems uh underrated horror movies and brendan's gonna lead us off he has a few honorable mentions as do i so we're gonna run through those honorable mentions now go ahead yeah um just before we get to our list of course um i have i have three i could think about right now that i think are noteworthy um dolls from stork gordon i showed oh. jake this movie last halloween oh, yeah. season and uh, great movie it's great. I mean, it, it, it's really like a fantasy fairy tale disguised as a slasher movie with these, you know, <laughs> little miniature dolls that come alive. Yeah. You know, almost a haunted house type of way. Um, but yeah, I just love the style of it. I absolutely love the stop motion effects. Oh, yeah, um, totally. It just, it's one of those movies that I feel like if I watch as a kid or a teenager, it could be such a great introduction to the horror genre. That's yeah. It kind of felt like even Gremlins-esque a little bit, yeah. where it's kind of, it kind of gears towards like a child's sensibilities, like even the way the movie is made, but it's like through the eyes of Stuart Gordon, so it's like really crazy, but, you know, really bleak at times too, but like ultimately like that's more of his, one of his more lighthearted movies, I would say, um, in a strange way, but yeah, that was a great one. I love all of Stuart Gordon's movies for sure. Exactly. Um, and my my other two uh, quickly is uh, I, I loved I loved Madhouse. This is a movie from 1981, huh. um, and it's about a woman who's pursued by her twin sister, leading up on the days to her birthday. Um, so it's just a very interesting uh, kind of giallo esque American production. Mm. Um, so it's it's really it's really well shot. 
Um, it's it's a very different kind of slasher. You go into it thinking of maybe something a little schlocky, but it actually has this great story. And when you find out all the little, you know, twists about it, it it's just kind of a really dark and you know vengeful movie. Um, oh, that's about list. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I always recommend that. Not enough people have seen it at all. Um, and another one I'll add to my list um, that I really, I really have an appreciation for uh, was yesterday we watched Horror Express. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> um, and oh, yeah. I want to comment on that one. Not enough people have seen it, um, and it's a kind of Spanish and British co-production, mm-hmm. um, and it's just a really interesting movie. I mean, Jake and I said after, you know, it, it's it kind of blends four different genres or four different stories into one right. mishmash. Um, but you know, you 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 once you get sucked into the story, and everything starts happening, it's you don't want to turn away, and it's, it's right. so ahead of its time. For Absolutely, its its messages and themes, and it, it even had a little bit to say about religion in there. Yeah, and yeah. curses. So it's one of your uh, one, one of the things that gets you off the religious it, themes. Always, so. yeah, always in a movie. For sure. <laughs> no, yeah, that was a great one. We watched that last night, and it we kind of made a direct comparison to John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, no spoilers, of course, but there's like there's a creature that sort of starts affecting people's persona and you don't know quite who to trust. So there's like a mystery element to it. There's a, like you said, a religious element to it. It really had a lot of different, it's blending a lot of different tones, what we said, like a lot of different sort of uh, archetypes of storytelling, you know, like the train movie, but it was also like a kind of, there was cult aspects to it. There's religious, there was slasher elements that like combined a lot of different things to make a really good, like overall horror movie. So yeah, I love that one too. Um, How about yeah. yours? Oh, yeah, I'll do my three honorable mentions real quick. Um, the first one's really obscure. Like, I haven't really talked to anyone that has seen this movie, but it's The Transfiguration, which is a movie that came out in, the tw- in uh, I believe, 2016, which is, it's about a young boy who lives in, I believe, Harlem in New York, and, like, a really, really, um, like, beaten down and, and troubled neighborhood in Harlem, and he strikes up a relationship with a young vampire and it's a really really great little horror movie like super low budget but it, it was straight to netflix obviously it has a lot to say about you know wealth disparity and sort of like the uh the wealth you know the wealth gap in new york and like all this great stuff but it's also like a really great like vampire love story about a young teenage boy who's like finding his place in the world and this girl kind of helps him um and yeah that's a great one man like no one ever talks about it but like i really connected to it on a you know in a really deep way um and you know i love a good vampire movie like rooted in reality and that's kind of what it was so definitely check that one out um wendigo is another one which is a larry fezzedin movie that came out in 2002 i'm gonna bring him back later because i have another movie actually in my top five but wendigo is his second best movie in my opinion he's a super underrated horror filmmaker um he's he founded glass eye picks which is like a small independent horror company in new york um and um which i'll talk about more later because um that that really relates to the other movie i'm talking about but yeah wendigo is awesome man like that's a it's a movie about a family that kind of goes on a trip in an area that used to be occupied by Native Americans. 
and they sort of start getting hunted down by a mysterious creature. It has a lot to say about like genocide and, of course, like Native American territory and great themes like that. And it's really creepy um, and really interestingly told. So I, I, I absolutely love that movie. So I had to pick that. Um, <laughs> the last honorable mention I got to say is Nightmare Beach, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> which Brendan and I actually saw at the Music Box Theater. Um, they were doing these outdoor screenings, I remember, like on the patio during COVID. So it kind of gave you like a really uh, uh, drive-in feel, I guess you could say. And we saw Nightmare Beach there, which is uh, directed by Umberto Lenzi, who's like an Italian horror filmmaker. Um, and we we just had a blast watching it, honestly. Like it was really sleazy. Um, it kind of, it, It's dubbed terribly like most Italian horror movies. Um, and it kind of explores American party culture like in a really backwards way because he's an Italian guy. Um, so there's a lot of like unintentional comedy for sure, and that's part of why I love it. But but honestly, like the the filmmaking in that movie is really solid, and like the there's a lot of tension and mystery. Like it's it's kind of a subversion of a Giallo movie because it's like it's not typical slasher um, tropes in the movie. It was more of a it kind of blends comedy and like. Um, I don't know. Would you say like sci-fi elements? Because there's like yeah. the kills are like really straight out in that movie. Um, I just try to pick the most out there and like I guess unique Italian horror movie because there's so many great ones you could talk about like Lucio Fulci and Mario Bava, obviously. Um, but also just because we have a really funny memory of seeing that movie yeah. at the music box, I had to bring that one up. Um, and I bought the Blu-ray because like I would definitely watch it again. It was so much fun. So yeah, guys, those, those are the uh, honorable mentions, man. You wanna, you kind of want to, you can do your number five, and I'll do my number five. We'll just switch back and forth if you want to do it that way. Yeah, for sure, that works for yeah. me. Yeah, um, you go ahead, go for. Yeah, yeah. The first movie I want to talk about, I kind of want to kick off with a bang on my list. Um, oh man, oh shit. Uh, <laughs> this to me is one of Wes Craven. You know, one of the horror masters, you know. Definitely was, a master. If there was a Mount Rushmore of horror figures, he, he would probably be up there. <laughs> He's not definitely up there. He's definitely up there. But one of his lesser known movies that I know not, not enough people either love or not enough people have seen is Shocker. Um, this is from 1989, and it's about a man, a serial killer, who is sent to the electric chair who uses electricity to come back from the dead and carry out his vengeance on the football player who turned him into the police. Of course. Um, already, <laughs> it's just batshit. It's insane. Yeah, um, really out there. It is, it is. And what I want to highlight about it before I start talking about it, it's Peter Berg is the main character. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, Mitch, Mitch Pelagi is uh, the... The, st the serial killer who's hunting after him, Heather Lannenkamp, you know, makes an appearance. Even Ted Raimi's in it uh, for a little oh, bit. I didn't so know that. Wow. It's, it's overall just has a really interesting cast. Um, but, but what I really love about it um, was Wes Craven came back to the drawing board. He had a lot of, a lot of flops and, um, mm -hmm. in the 80s especially. Definitely. And he wanted to do a movie that he thought could spawn some sequels because he didn't get enough money from Nightmare on Elm Street. So he thought of this idea, Shocker. And originally he wanted it to be a TV series. Uh, didn't quite work out like that. And uh, obviously mm. there was never even a sequel for it. Um, but if anything, I find that even more fascinating about the movie. Um, the movie in itself is almost has two parts to it. The first 
no spoilers, but the first half is more of this crime coming of age even film. Mm. Um, and then the second half is kind of a horror comedy. Um, it, it's very unique how he kind of blends both of these together. Like he always does, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but I thought it just worked so well for the story. And, uh, I had an absolute blast with it. Um, eventually, you know, Wes Craven, he always has, you know, strong themes and things to say about the world too. And oh, for sure. you know, at this time, everyone was obsessed with media and the uh, television sets. So that's why he created this character of, you know, Horace, uh, Horace Pinker, who, who literally, um, <laughs> survives from the electric chair and can go through TVs, through telephone wires and kind of mm-hmm. kill those inhabitants. Um, and then he could also kind of play with time in that way too. Um, but I think he had a lot to say about where we were, especially towards the end of the eighties about media, media consumption, and um, especially about the death penalty. I think that's oh, yeah. another one of the main themes about the movie is, is it right to kill off someone who maybe has done horrible things? And um, from there, he just tells this fascinating and very, very interesting effects towards the end, too. You know, oh, almost yeah. B-movie-esque, but I love them. You know, you, mm-hmm. see, you see them fighting inside of famous episodes from old tv shows and, you know it's <laughs> that's just, fun yeah. it's, a, it's just a fun a blast of a movie um and i'd really recommend anyone that's hesitant about it from its rating uh to really check it out yourself um and i think i, I think you might share the same opinion as hopefully i do <laughs> sweet yeah that's that's definitely been on my watch list for a while you know i've seen most of craven's work mm-hmm. like People Under the Stairs and Serpent in the Rainbow are ones that I, I definitely want to check out soon because people always rave about them as like, you know, obviously he's got the Scream franchise and Nightmare and yeah. Last House on the Left. But yeah, that's definitely one that people don't bring up as much. So definitely check that one out, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely intrigued to now for sure. Um, so my number five is fitting because it is actually Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> Which, man, guys, it's hard to justify this one because this is definitely one of the most derided of the Halloween sequels, but I don't know. I mean, over time, I remember when I was a kid, I would watch all the Halloween sequels on AMC. I think we talked about that because yep, every October they would they would binge them all, like I think the last week or week or two of October, which was yeah. always fun. Um, and when I was a kid, like say like 10 or 11, I, would, I saw the first Halloween <clears throat> and I was always intrigued by the sequels, but everyone just talked about how terrible they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw them, and I, I tended to agree, especially, like, six and seven, like, the, the ones toward <laughs> the latter half. I know you love six. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I rewatched them all leading up to David Gordon Green's Halloween, um, one through even the Rob Zombie ones, pretty much all of them. <laughs> and there's something about five that I thought was really felt really october-y mostly i think the set design and like the way the movie was shot i know the director i can't even pronounce his name he's, he hasn't done anything else but i feel like the overall look of him as well as michael myers like it feels really october-y just like the original halloween did um and obviously there's a ton of storytelling uh moments that make no sense to that movie and there's a lot of horrible acting like it's not a well-made movie but this, I just really enjoy the set pieces. I think Michael Myers is really menacing. I like Donald Pleasance kind of going down the <laughs> rabbit hole of insanity, like constantly just shouting at a little girl throughout the whole movie. Like, 
It's definitely, a, I'd say, the one movie on this list that's just like a definitely a guilty pleasure. Um, and I just, you know, I hope it, it holds up when I rewatch it in like, you know, a few years or so. But um, yeah, I kind of have, I think we talked about this. Like, I think we both kind of dig the Halloween sequels more than most people would. Like, we obviously yeah. love three. Uh, I know you love four, but um, five for me is the one that I would say is like top three Halloween movies. Um which is both thing, nostalgic, yeah. but also, yeah, I genuinely think it's it's a solid horror movie. So, so yeah. Um, There's something fun about the beginning of that movie, too. Because <laughs> yeah. the ending of 4 is Absolutely. amazing. Amazing, it yeah. It might be one of the best endings of, of that whole series. Really one shocking, of no spoilers. <laughs> and one, once it kind of delves into 5, and you kind of get accustomed with these teenagers and... There's, it's, it's just, it's very, it has a great opening. I'll say that. Right. Um, and she's, she's Daniel Harris is in the psychiatric ward. Donald Pleasance is like losing his mind. He looks like he's about to die, like in his face. He just, he's on the cusp oh, of oh death. Yeah. 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 He just, it, it, it's a great mention. It's a great mention. Yeah. We really do love those sequels. Even, even <laughs> if there's some storytelling flaws, it's, there's a lot, they, but... they put you in that fall spirit. There's something That's about, the thing, dude. there's something about like, you know, getting a blanket and, you know, maybe turning on a nice fall candle and just putting on those movies. <laughs> no, that's exactly it, yeah. You, that? you, that's exactly why. Because not even to shit on the new David Gordon Green movies, mm-hmm. but they definitely don't give me that October feeling like these sequels do. Yeah. And it, it might be nostalgic value, like I said, watching it on AMC and stuff. But, yeah, and 5 is definitely, one, like I said, the most derided and hated one. And I th- I think it's it's pretty good. So that's my number 5. Yeah, what's your, what's your number 4 on yeah. your list? Yeah, my number four, um, I wanted to add in a foreign recommendation on this list. So I picked a mm-hmm. um, Uruguay, U- Uruguay, uh, Uruguay movie here um, in Spanish. It's called The Last Matinee. This is from 2020. Um, oh. It was actually one of those movies that was released on VOD. And I read the synopsis. It's about uh, on, a, on a stormy night in Montevideo. An engineering student named Anna takes over the duties of her father, a projectionist at a declining movie theater. Unbeknownst to her, the audience watching the film that she's running starts being murdered by a crazed killer. Um, I think there's something, not only about the release of the movie, I, I wanted to you know, watch something at home and you know, just overall find some comfort while all that crazy shit was going on outside. Yeah. Um, and this movie weirdly provided it for me. Um, it's basically a Spanish version of a Italian giallo. It's definitely has a love for the seventies kind of horror and even some American slashers from the eighties. Um, but I always thought to me a movie theater is, could be one of the most unsafe places. You know, you never know oh, what yeah. can happen when the lights dim and when there's really no sound and all you hear is that, is that movie in front of you. And this movie is really is, is somewhat terrifying in that way. You know, the killer slowly killing people from their seats or people going up to the bathroom and you know, getting murdered in the, in the bathroom. Yeah, um, like Scream 2 or something. Exactly, yeah. It's just a really fun, well-made you know, love letter to that, to that type of filmmaking. And that's what I adored about it. It didn't, mm. it, it didn't take itself too seriously either. You know, it, it had fun with its plot. And super underrated. I see on Letterboxd only like 7,000 people have seen it even. Oh, wow. Um, but I, I totally rec- recommend it. It's, and also on top of that, it's totally 
just the violence and how gnarly of a movie it is. It gets really disturbing, um, probably because it is, you know, more of a foreign movie than what America would probably censor. Um, oh, yeah. So it really goes all the way. But also has this great plot, a great plot about, you know, do you want to take over for your parents' job? You know, some parents tell you, oh, you have to be this, you have to be that. And for her, she really doesn't want to be a projectionist. She wants to study. But in this situation, she really has to face it and kind of learn how to be a projectionist, which I also thought was interesting. Like, how do you work a, how do you work the reels? So there's there's a lot there's a lot about it that if you're just a fan of movies, you will absolutely love the setting and your love. Oh yeah, definitely. Your love how everything happens in that movie. Yeah. It's like Lamberto Bava's uh, Demons that all takes place yeah. in the movie theater. Uh-huh. It's always fun when there's a horror movie that kind of gets really meta and starts kind of. Uh, using that location to its advantage, you know, storytelling wise in a theater, because there's so much to do usually. Um, so yeah, that's is that streamable? Like, is that Shutter original or something? Yeah, I think it might be streamable, but uh, I do own it too. I actually, I was I was so in love with it, I had to buy it. Oh wow! So, so if anyone wants to watch it, you know where to yeah, who to borrow it from. Yeah, and... yeah. Just call me <laughs> and uh, I'll deliver it to your house. No, <laughs> yeah, there you go. What's well, yours? Uh... Cool. Um, yeah, my number four is. Actually, kind of similar to yours, where it came out in 2020, um, and also was elevated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but mine's a movie called The Beach House, uh, which, like I said, released in 2020, directed by Jeffrey A. Brown. Um, the plot, real quick, is very standard issue. At least the setup is very uh, foundational. You know, it's two, you know, a really young couple, two college sweethearts, I guess you can call them. Um, go to, I think it was the, the girl, her family owned a lake house. Um, and they go just to get away for just a nice vacation together. Um, but I think about 20 minutes in an older couple show up, um, saying that they, um, are friends with her parents. Um, and I think she remembers them and they, it sort of becomes like a really uncomfortable sort of situation. You know, they're sharing the house. Um, you think it might go into maybe slasher territory or psychological horror or something of that sort, but it kind of subverts your expectations because they're on the beach and they start noticing like weird neon lights and sort of weird kind of shapes and and kind of plant uh, extensions from the beach start coming closer to the house. And obviously it, just, it, it kind of just devolves into like an environmental horror movie. Um, and obviously in 2020, you know, that, that felt really, uh, relevant and kind of needed. And it kind of, kind of felt like a cross between like Cronenberg, Carpenter, um, and you know, body horror, you know, it just became body horror and it kind of came out of nowhere. And that's what kind of fucked me up about it. Um, cause it's like a really, really strong character story like about 30 minutes in then it kind of just devolves into this crazy bad shit um environmental allegory and they kind of fight for survival because i think it whatever comes out of the ocean starts mutating and affecting them mentally um which you can kind of like you can kind of mirror that to like when people talk about you know the glaciers and antarctica start melting and weird diseases are going to start coming out you know they couldn't mess with us psychologically we don't know um, and that's what the beach house kind of explored. And there's no explanation ever. It's like a really, um, really confusing and really daunting, um, 
uh, antagonist throughout the movie, and you really just don't know. And I love how disorienting it feels, um, and some really great gore, um, some really great kills, and some really fun. And it, even though I, I'm, I'm painting it as really bleak and like kind of environmentally conscious horror movie, it's a really fun sort of survival horror movie. Um, and like you said about the COVID thing coming out in like 2020, um, the movie's all about claustrophobia and kind of your mind melting from cabin fever. And that's what that movie kind of explores. And I, I put it on the list because like I don't, again, I don't hear a lot of people talk about it. And I think it's a really solid straight to shutter movie. So if you have shutter, definitely check out The Beach House. Um, you will not be let down if you're a horror fan. Yeah, I really have to check that one out. It sounds yeah. interesting to me. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, um, the next, the next one I have um, is also a movie deeply, deeply rooted with some strong themes about our current world order or society in itself. This is uh, Land of the Dead by Ooh, George Romero. Georgie boy. George Romero, another person who could maybe fit on the, uh, you know, Mount Love Rushmore of horror. Mount Rushmore contender. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And everyone knows him for Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living, Day of the Dead. And, um, you know, I think they all know what he looked like, you know, but <laughs> no one ever wants to talk about the movies he did post-2000s. Um, right. Yes, he didn't, you know, take money and, you know, try to make, you know, movie after movie he really took his time to think of a of a strong trilogy of movies here that he put out in the 2000s about zombies and you know him being the grandfather of zombies i think he had a lot to say here with land of the dead um it's about a world full of zombies and the survivors have barricaded themselves inside a walled up city uh to keep out the living dead as the wealthy hide out in the skyscrapers and chaos rules the streets the rest of the survivors must find a way to stop the evolving zombies from breaking into the city. Um, this movie has an interesting cast. Dennis Hopper is the villain. That's right, yeah. <laughs> if that doesn't sell you already, Jake, I, I don't know what <laughs> that will. Def that definitely sells me. <laughs> you had me at Romero. I'll see anything you make. Yeah. Uh, John Leguizamo's in it. Uh, Asia Argento's in it. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Robin Ward. It's it's, it's an interesting cast, yeah. cast for that time. And it's... It's definitely his biggest budget uh, that he had um, probably all all throughout his whole career, I'd have to say, in terms of the sets and his extras here. But I think he had a lot to say here, uh, not only from the synopsis, but about wealth disparity, um, about world order, about who can be protected or who's mm -hmm. not protected. So it's, it's very interesting. And... Um, I, I really do love they have a character in this movie uh, I think it's, is his name Anchor is it Anchor I think I'm thinking of right now but um, you know he always has that character in his movie a lovable zombie who doesn't yeah, you yeah. know like in Day of the Dead doesn't have all those zombie features but is actually humanistic and like I said earlier I love when I love when there's something that's traditionally kind of monster like is actually lovable or you know you kind of care for and in this movie, yeah. he creates one that's kind of walking around and seeing everything as it is. And uh, it was just very interesting in that way. But not only that, the, the action is great. Um, and like I said, just the amount of extras he has this makes makes this whole city and mm. situation very real and livable. Um, I think 
one of the things, this is the quote that I have. Oh, that was the name of the guy, Big Daddy. <laughs> Who's walking around. He's just this really tall zombie. You could totally yeah, stand out from the crowd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but this is what I really said about it. I said, I always enjoy it when Romero treats the zombies as if they're humans like us. And again, he goes back to that tropes of, you know, it's the real humans in our world that are worse than the zombies. And that's what Dennis Hopper and his, you know, rich capitalistic friends uh, kind right. of are in this in this film and uh just a quote that i love from this movie is they're looking for a place to go one of honestly one of the best quotes in all of his movies and that's what mm. that's in reference to the zombies obviously is that they're not looking to kill us they're just their minds are just looking for a place to go so yeah definitely um definitely recommend this one uh i'd say throw this on for uh halloween and you will not be disappointed absolutely <laughs> Yeah, and the the original, you know, he he, he you, yeah. you can consider Romero as the, like the not only the grandfather of zombies, but like one of the first independent horror ma- filmmakers of all yeah. time. You know, because Night of the Living Dead was made for a shoestring budget, and you know, to see him come so far from that is like really cool. You know, still up until his death was making zombie movies, so he found his niche, and yeah, and a lot of them are really great. You know, Day of the Dead being my personal favorite, so. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Romero. It's, I'm glad we could highlight him on here for sure. Definitely, we have to. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, my number three um, is um, Australian filmmaker Richard Franklin, who directed Psycho 2, which I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. But I have seen um, a movie he released in 1981 called Road Games, which is an amazing sort of cat and mouse thriller. Um, so it's, it's about, yeah, it's about a truck driver who is on... It's kind of ambiguous where the movie takes place. Obviously, they shot it in Australia, but they're all American actors. You got Stacey Keach, who's amazing in this movie, but you also got Jamie Lee Curtis, um, who's sort of a hitchhiker on the road. But there's essentially a, a serial killer out just killing people on the road in sort of like this desolate Australian highway. Um, and Stacey Keach sort of gets caught up in these murders, and it really becomes a frightening cat and mouse game on these really des- desolate roads. Um, and the movie is directed exceptionally because I think there's a lot of tones to this movie. Sort of what we were talking about with uh, with uh, with Horror Express that we we're talking. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a lot of different kind of like subcategories throughout the movie. Like there's there is really character driven. You know, like. Stacey Keish and Jamie Lee Curtis really get to know each other and you really get to know sort of their backstories as characters. And obviously it's a road movie, but it's also a slasher. It's also a cat and mouse thriller. It kind of has a lot of different things going on for, going on um, and extremely tense, um, beautifully shot. There's some really great psychedelic sequences yeah. where Stacey Keish is sort of losing his mind on the road. He hasn't slept for like three days and it, be, it kind of becomes sort of a... Uh, psychological test for him um and it's just a blast of a movie like it's so it's so rich in character but it's also so great in its horror execution um and richard franklin directed psycho 2 which i really want to see because he seems like i know like tarantino and a lot of people always talk about the australian new wave of of movies like in the late 70s early 80s and they always mention Richard Franklin, you know, obviously George Miller was one of them, but Richard Franklin people always talk about, and I definitely want to see more of his movies, but <clears throat> Road Games is absolutely an amazing movie. Um, and yeah, um, if you want to get it, especially if you want to get into more like, um, not foreign horror, but you know, more obscure genre, like uh, sort of 
grindhouse style horror, then Road Games is definitely one to watch. Um, yeah, it's a great one. Definitely, yeah, I'd second that. It, it's such an interesting film, and it's, it's more of a dark kind of thriller. Yeah, and it's fun to just kind of be stranded on the road with them throughout that whole movie mm-hmm. and kind of see what would happen. I I think that's been a fear of, in, at least in my life. Oh yeah, you know, absolutely. <laughs> and especially being chased or being followed by another car. I think. Yeah. That's a very real uh, scenario yeah. for anyone. <laughs> People always compared it to Duel, which was Spielberg's like er, one of his earliest features, um, which has a really similar plot. But I don't, I don't think it gets as gnarly and as violent as Road Games because uh, Road <clears throat> Games is more of a you know genre uh, B movie. But um, but yeah, that's my number three. So great one. Yeah. Um, for me, we have two left already. Yeah, we're already getting <laughs> there. Believe Damn. it or not. Um, my second one is a movie called Bad Moon. Um, this this is another one, only 7,000 on Letterboxd if you've even seen it. Um, but this one is about one man's struggle to contain the curse he hides within and his last-ditch attempt to free himself with the love of his family. But when it looks as if he's losing the battle and endangering all he holds the most, the family dog is the last hope for his family's oh, yeah. survival and the end to his werewolf curse. Um, if you've ever wanted to see a movie where a German Shepherd uh, fights against a werewolf and the German Shepherd is somewhat the main character of a movie, uh, definitely watch Bad Moon. You know, you don't, that's great. You don't see dogs be the main character of horror movies, and that's why I really wanted to highlight this one. <laughs> um, this is a short, really short movie, 80 minutes, it clocks in at. Um, but I, I, love, I love when there's a new take on a familiar monster. You know, we all know werewolf lore we all know when the full moon's out they're turned into the beast um but what i love about this movie's approach is it takes place in the secluded woods um and it's about a a woman who tells her brother hey live live with me for a little bit you know well we'll help you out i know you're down on your luck but little does she know he's he's a werewolf and uh you know the german shepherd uh, starts sniffing around and starts hearing noises in the night and you kind of follow from his perspective for most of the movie um, That's but fun. yeah yeah it's it's just a fun movie it I think what I love about it is it totally feels like you're in the middle of nowhere you're in this yeah. quiet forest you have really no help around you um, yeah it's just it, it's it's very interesting in that in that way um, but yeah, and then just in itself, I mean, who, who doesn't want to watch like a cute dog, you know, kind of <laughs> sniff around and follow things. And I mean, the dog in this movie, I, I know they used three dogs I saw online uh, to shoot the scenes with him, but they all did such a good job. <laughs> you, you really Great feel dog performances, the, yeah. the dog performance. <laughs> it, it rivals the thing, the opening of the thing, you know, Ooh, uh, <laughs> that says a lot. It really does. Yeah. yeah. And I know German shepherds are technically like one of the smartest dogs yeah and high iq yeah. yeah high iq indeed and um and on, on top of that i just want to um also cut in about how strong i think this script is i know it's based off of a novel um oh yeah but there's so many clever little details that i've, I've seen this movie twice now that i've kind of picked up on um like for example his brother her brother's trailer is uh the size of a silver bullet um, Ooh, wow. <laughs> little Easter eggs. Yeah, yeah, little Easter eggs like that throughout. And I don't want to spoil all of them for you guys. But um, it's definitely just a really interesting play on a monster movie. 
Um, very low key, probably filmed with you know very shoestring budget. Um, right. But I really love when a, a movie you could just pull it pull it off like this, you know, with very little and still say a lot. I I think it says a lot about family in itself. <laughs> you know how who how do you trust family members, um, and how much do you really know about each other? I think. I think it really does say a lot about Interesting. that. Interesting, wow. Um, other than that, maybe it's not as thematic as the other movies. Sure. But yeah. it's just a blast to put it on, on a, you know, when it's really quiet. And uh, I hope you have uh, fun with it. <laughs> oh, it's a good endorsement. Yeah. I definitely want to see it now, too. Um, all right, yeah, my number two, I teased this before when I talked about Wendigo, uh, Larry Fessenden. I absolutely love his movies, and I think his masterpiece is Habit from 1995. Um, I kind of talked about this earlier, too, with Transfiguration and my honorable mentions, where it's sort of a love story um, disguised as a vampire movie, and that's what Habit is, too. Um, so basically, Larry Fessenden, sort of this loser, sloppy drunk in um, New York. He's living in a shitty apartment. He works at a bar. He kind of has a directionless life. So automatically, he's kind of really relatable. If you're in your 20s, he's like a really relatable protagonist. And he meets a really seductive girl who happens to be a vampire. Um, and of course, you know, if you know tropes of vampire movies, he starts having a thirst for blood and addiction and madness. And, and what that movie is, though, for me, felt like a really strong allegory for sex addiction and drug addiction. Because um, the movie's locations are really raw. Like, they're in really, you know, seedy apartments in New York, like kind of the underbelly of New York. It kind of feels like you're watching a John Cassavetes movie, um, kind of exploring, like, the more raw aspects of New York City and sort of the hecticness of it. Um, but all in a vampire movie, you know? Like, it really reminds me of The Addiction, directed by Abel Ferreira, um, and which is also an incredible vampire movie that's highly rooted in reality but habit for me is like just absolutely so emotional um emotionally engaging um with its characters got it's got great horror elements that feel super authentic um and yeah man uh larry fesident is one of the most underrated horror filmmakers of all time like He's mainly known for acting and producing. He really does it all. Like you've, he's, he's in a lot of Kelly Reichardt movies. He was in You're Next. Um, he's been in Jim Jarmusch movies. Um, he's produced some Kelly Reichardt movies. I think some of her movies are under his production company. Um, he produced House of the Devil by Ty West and The Innkeepers by Ty West. Um, he's done a lot for horror independent movies and directing. He's made a few great ones. So I just wanted to highlight Larry Fessenden because not a lot of people have seen his movies, especially Habit and Wendigo. So please check my man out. He's a great, he's a great uh, um, beacon of hope for, for aspiring directors out there. So I need to check out more of his work. Cause like, like kind of like with what I said with my film, you know, someone that could really get it done with a shoestring budget and you just are motivated after the movie. Like I need to finish my screenplay. I need to, you know, start shooting a movie with my friends, you know, absolutely, just, yeah. something that it just puts a smile on your face after and you're just, you're just so happy. <laughs> yeah. But it's great being inspired. And I think all the movies we talked about, um, have given us inspiration for sure. Um, and, exactly. Um, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> shout out Larry Fesden. He's yeah. the man. Hope shout you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and that, um, my final one, we're last, number one. Yeah. What's your yeah. number one? Yeah. We're all at number one. Um, so Hellbound. Hellraiser 2 oh, man. is my final one. Um, I could have guessed, yeah. <laughs> I'm such a fan of 
the Hellraiser films. Even even the shitty ones could, you know, make me laugh and uh, I could kind of have fun with. But I, I think what really carries Hellbound, and I think of even why I'm going to say a hot take that it's even better than the original, wow. is just how cryptic, mythic, and demonic it really is. Um, Good way to put it. You know, I, I really think... It feels like you're trapped. It's almost like a labyrinth, but with an R rating. <laughs> I think that's that definitely <laughs> felt Jim Henson like, yeah. Especially the design too. That's what I thought after finishing the movie. I'm like, this is labyrinth with an R rating, and um, <laughs> God, it it really goes all the way. Um, but this is this is a movie about you know Kirsty after the events of the first one where the occult obsessive head doctor resurrects Julia from the first movie and unleashes the Cenobites and their demonic world. Yeah. Um, I just find it to be a perfect sequel. It just, it basically takes what was there for the first one, you know, which was more of a kind of single location, erotic, you know, also fucked up movie. But here um, in Hellbound, they make it, a lot more mythic, and they add to the the lore of Hellraiser and Pinhead. They they set up you know Pinhead's backstory. They set up um, a lot more about what hell looks like in Hellraiser. It's not um, where everyone's getting tortured, but it's actually a world where you're kind of trapped and you you don't know where you're going. It provides instant anxiety and terror. Um, because you have no idea where the exits are. You're just, it's yeah. a never-ending puzzle. Disorienting, for sure. It's just yeah. a puzzle, which, which I find to be way creepier than being burned alive or being tortured. It's, I mean, to be trapped somewhere and not, not know how to get out. Um, <laughs> True. But on top of that, I think, I think Tony Randall, the director, um, did such a great job. I mean, I think the script is a really, really great script by Peter Atkins here. And Clyde Barker helped with the story too, so he had he had some uh, input on this idea. Mm-hmm. But I think just what they did for the Hellraiser series, they just really elevated it, and the score is just ear piercing and phenomenal. Um, and just I, I would really recommend this if you're ever. It's very twisted and dark, um, but if you're looking for something to kind of say more about, you know what hell might be like mm, or yeah. what your fears are. That's, that's what this movie really taps into. Um, and I also want to say one of my favorite lines from this movie. If, if you're really into yeah, just like stuff that taps into your fears and makes you feel really gross, like you need to take a shower after. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hellraiser 2 is that movie. Pretty nasty. It's really that movie. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite quotes from this movie is when the doctor, uh, I won't spoil it, but the doctor says into it, to have... I." To have and to have thoughts, I hesitated. <laughs> Sorry about the quote mess up, but um, no problem. There, it's a, such an iconic moment when he steps out of this configuration and he finally realizes just how much this world of like pleasure and pain could actually provide happiness for him. It's it's really uh, decrepit and twisted. <laughs> so wow. um, I would I would really recommend anyone that wants to watch something very gothic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, you will you will not be disappointed if you want to see yeah, labyrinth on cocaine. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> stuck in a maze. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked by it too when you you showed me that a few months ago. It was a yeah. it was a mental trip, but also like deeply gory too, and like a really cerebral experience for sure. It's just kind of 
how it separates itself from the first movie because the first one's really rooted into the couple um the affair i mean and like the family kind of deteriorating sort of as like an allegory sort of thing but yeah hellraiser 2 just goes all out with the pinhead aspect of everything <laughs> and the and kind of unleashing hell on the viewer so yeah it's a great pick man and and I heard you load that up in your phone in case you're on the toilet too long. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just rewatch all my favorite uh, pinhead scenes. He's got it on Amazon Prime. Queued <laughs> up at all times. <laughs> Great movie. Yeah, I, I suck at that. Hellraiser definitely. 2 is... They probably put it on at Kuma's Corner sometimes. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a metal movie, honestly. <laughs> it's so metal, yeah. You could probably blast like some metal soundtrack and it would fit oh, with yeah. every scene. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up metal because that leads into my number one really well. Um, my number one is kind of what inspired me to want to do this list because I've been wanting to talk about this movie on the podcast for a long time and just in general because, again, like I only have a few people in my life that have seen this movie. Um, but The Devil's Candy, uh, which came out in 2015, directed by, oddly enough, I have two Australian directors <laughs> on my list, Sean Byrne, who directed The Loved Ones, which is also a really great more more comedic torture movie um but the loved ones is great but his follow-up the devil's candy in my opinion is like a modern horror masterpiece it's about uh, again really typical kind of archetypal uh plot setup where a family moves into their dream home it's in like rural texas it's really remote um ethan embry who stars and is absolutely incredible in this movie is an artist and his daughter plays guitar um, they're sort of a family of artists and they all were experiencing writer's blocks. They're like, hey, let's go to Texas and see if we can get inspired. Um, and lo and behold, the house is haunted as fuck. They start being possessed by satanic forces and Ethan Embry, who is an artist, like a visual artist, starts painting these really metal um, satanic paintings and his daughter plays, uh, starts playing this really you know, satanic metal music. Um, so I like to describe it as... A modern day shining movie but infused with metal and there's also there's a serial killer on the loose uh as well so that, that comes into play there's a lot going on in this movie it's a it's an 80 minute really lean um to the point movie um incredibly well edited and shot like the the visuals are gorgeous like a lot obviously you can imagine ethan embry's paintings are like really disturbing and, and sort of um, thematically linked to the plot, which they are, but they're so good to look at. Um, and there's a rhythm of this movie that just, I always think about it when Halloween time comes. Cause it's like one of those horror movies that it's like to the rhythm of metal music. Cause the, uh, the soundtrack, um, and sort of like the, uh, um, obviously, like I said, his daughter plays metal. So like there's kind of the stylistic choice is like to metal music. So I feel like Sean Byrne was re really inspired by metal you know albums you know trying to make his own like metal horror movie and i'm not even a big metal fan in terms of music but this movie it just works on every level like it's a it's a unique in tone it's it's scary as hell the acting's incredible the visuals are amazing just super underappreciated you know like the people that have seen it love it but the people that haven't seen it just they just have to watch it because like i feel like as a horror fan it gives you everything you could want so yeah, that's my number one, man. I, I've always I've been a huge fan of that movie for a long time, and same with all the other movies that we talked about today. So I feel like yeah. we covered a lot of great, 
great horror movies there, man. Um, yeah, honestly, we covered a lot of aspects of horror, you know? Yeah, like we when we were preparing this, we were like, let's try to cover, you know, different countries, yeah. different subgenres, you know, the slasher, possession, you know, all that good stuff. Um, but, you know, in the end, I really picked the ones that are close to my heart, you know, like yeah. horror movies that I genuinely love that, you know, maybe only a few thousand people have have talked to, you know, t- you know, logged on Letterboxd and stuff like that, Definitely. so. So, yeah, man, um, there's actually one last thing I want to do, because we were talking about, or you had brought up Mount Rushmore of horror. Yeah. So, I thought it'd be fun if we end it. Uh, let's, t- what's your Mount Rushmore of horror? Who's your top four horror directors? Um, uh, just on the top of your head, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely John Carpenter. Yeah. I mean... His stuff has been so foundational, not not only in college, but... Before I mean, that for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, even before that for some people, but in college and since then, it's... Every year I'm watching two or three Carpenters and just being astounded by each one. Um, Absolutely. What What's one for you? We'll go back to you for a second. Um, Carpenter's definitely on mine, and yeah, I second okay. everything you said. Cronenberg um, definitely has to be up there for me. Okay. Um, definitely the most... I feel like has the most distinct style of, of most, you know, of, of the acclaimed horror directors today. Yeah. Um, but I just love how his career is kind of ebbed and flows into different, you know, <laughs> aspects of horror. You know, he's um, not even, you know, movies that aren't necessarily horror movies like History of Violence and um, Eastern Promises and stuff. But like just this year, he had one of my favorite movies of the year with Crimes of the Future, which is like an odd blend of body horror, but also noir and, 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 uh, sci-fi uh post-apocalyptic aspects as well um to me he is the most distinct voice in horror but also explores the themes that might be that's true extremely taboo and under Mm -hmm. the surface that most horror directors you know don't often go down so you know i don't have to sell cronenberg you guys know he's he's amazing (laughs) (laughs) we did a whole episode on him (laughs) um do you want me to keep going with? Yeah, you I can finish up, my other yeah, ones. Up your other two, so yeah. Carpenter, we got Cronenberg. Um, I'll say Argento. I got to name one Italian guy for me. I'm a yeah. huge fan of Italian <laughs> horror, and you know, you mentioned Giallo and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Argento has arguably three of the best, in my opinion, with Opera, Suspiria, and Deep Red. Um, um, Phenomena. He's got so many wonderful movies. Um, you know, and it's hard for I could I, I could pick Fulci, Bava, any of those guys, but I guess Argento introduced me in, in to Italian horror and got me um, into those other directors, so I have to kind of pay homage to him that way. So he's he'd definitely be up there. Um, you know, man, that's tough for number four. I would just go Craven, honestly. Like we mentioned him before, you know. Um, I could try to be cool and pick someone more obscure, but yeah. <laughs> Craven's, you know, you can't argue with that resume. And probably of Carpenter, Cronenberg, and um, Argento makes the purest horror movies of all of them. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't, besides the musical that he directed with Meryl Streep, oh, yeah. he never really veered off into anything outside of slashers and, you know, um, maybe Red Eye, you can argue, as a thriller. But I think he stayed true to the genre all the way through and, like, Nightmare and, on Elm Street and Scream and alone, you know, having two of those franchises birthed out of his brain, you know, like, I feel like you can't argue with that. So, um, and I, you know, he's, he's like Carpenter, like we said, he, he kind of got me into horror at a really young age. Yeah. So got it. Yeah. Shout out to, to Wes, you know, 
I have a feeling you're gonna bring yeah, up someone that I forgot, but yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I'm I'm surprised on your list. Uh, no Sam Raimi. <laughs> I thought about but it, but he I, I don't know if there's enough to warrant it. You know, yeah. The four that I love, you know, Evil Dead and Drag Me to Hell. You know, I don't yeah. know. Fuck, you're right. I should have maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't. <laughs> Honorable mention Sam Raimi. Thank Honorable. you. Thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, go ahead though. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, yeah, definitely Romero. Um, absolutely you know i mentioned him earlier but night of the living dead i watched in like third grade and Shit. ever since then I've, I've i saw diary of the dead i think sixth grade and i'm just honestly he's what made me fall in love with the genre in some way um yeah and he and i think is now that i've gotten older i've appreciated the deeper meanings to his movies you know oh yeah there's not it's not just cut and dry like you know we might come to ex- expect in the horror genre um, not only him, but yeah, I'm gonna put Wes Craven also on that list. Oh yeah. Um, even I think I've seen like 13 Wes Cravens now, and I'm always astounded. Wow. Even even if the movie's not great, there's something you know maybe his presence behind the camera or yeah yeah. There's there's something about the performance that he's getting out of the movie or the style that. You still can't appreciate. Um, I have a whole section on my Blu-ray shelf dedicated for him <laughs> right now because I own so many. You know, yeah, you do. see, I see him over there. You look at it right now. You know, um, and then uh, other than so you got other, three. Yeah, got I got one three, more. and I want to add in uh, Guillermo del Toro. Ooh, um, yeah, it's a good pick. Too. <clears throat> you know, I know a lot of people uh, know about him, but I think he's just a modern master. Um, I've loved every single one of his movies and he was so foundational you know for me not only pan's labyrinth crimson mm. peak even uh devil's backbone right and even uh we love uh chronos, yeah, chronos. that was on my other honorable mentions list i just didn't get to it yeah chronos, such an chronos is mad underrated so underrated um but as as a director i i just i just love what he makes and he has such a love for the craft yeah. You see it in all of his movies after you're done watching them. You know, I just I just always think to myself, Oh, I just wanna I just wanna go and make something again. <laughs> He's so Very inspirational. Inspiring, He's yeah. so inspirational. Um, and I just love watching his interviews. I, I always even watch that with him. Just because mm-hmm. I just love him so much. He has such a great personality. He is wonderful, yeah. But that's my Mount Rushmore, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ones I, I was gonna say that I thought you were gonna mention was Hitchcock, because I Hitchcock, yeah. Maybe, I feel like yeah. it was too obvious to say, but I know. you know, I'm obviously Hitchcock's super inspirational to all of us. But uh, definitely, I feel like he was he was one I forgot. I was thinking like yeah. Korean, like could I, you mentioned Bong Joon Ho or like yeah Park Chan Wook again, kind of like what I was saying about Cronenberg. Like a lot of these, even Guillermo del Toro to some extent, you know, they've carved their own sort of genre just with their films. You know, they've mm-hmm. created like a subgenre. Like oh, that's a Cronenberg movie. That's a Guillermo del Toro movie because it's like. You know, you can look at Guillermo del Toro. His movies are really gothic and fantastical. Cronenberg's are really pessimistic and dry. You know, yeah. Um, so I I, I love Guillermo del Toro too, because like, and and obviously Cronenberg, because like, there's this they carved their own little place in horror. You know, they kind of elevated it in some way. Um, so yeah, the, I think that you know, there's probably we can go on forever with with other horror horror directors that Definitely. could potentially be on there. Man, there's so many. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, yeah, guys, let us know if you have seen any of the movies on our list. You mm-hmm. know, we'd love to hear, and obviously, we'd love to hear more recommendations for what you think are the most underrated horror gems out there. There's, you know, everyone's got their list. I feel like, and everyone has a different list. So, so yeah, happy October, guys. Happy spooky season, and yeah, we'll catch you later. Thanks. Yeah. Happy Halloween. Thanks for tuning in. I'll post in the comments, you know, some recommendations of your own.